Did you see the uh, the ledger the ledger memes of what people were were yeah, yeah. in the chat? Ledger definitely closes ledger drawers like- with his hips. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I listened to a podcast where he defended it. He's like, everyone does that, right? I was like, I do that too. Yeah, for sure, man. It's like Ledger's the kind of guy who says after a rain, the plants really needed this. <laughs> yeah, I saw that one. Before we jump into the app, quick reminder that nothing on Bell Curve is financial advice. Everything is just a meme. Hope you guys enjoy. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup of uh, Bell Curve here. We got Michaels 1 and 2, Yano and Vance. What's going on, fellas? How's well, it going? Big night. Big night. Just uh, yeah, Guys. staying up, watch the merge, hit the tub after uh, the hot tub, after, you know, all the festivities. <laughs> the, the tub. We're honored that you dragged the yourself tub. out of the tub just for a little old us. <laughs> Listen, no, no better way to celebrate, you know, get some of the boys in the hot tub. But, uh, but yeah. Oh, it's been an awesome 24 hours. I was also saying I thought it was the most like anticlimactic thing you could possibly celebrate, where everybody's huddled around a laptop waiting for the first block to finalize, and then it does, and everyone's like, cool, high five. <laughs> Everyone kind of like nice. slapped their knees and like, all right. <laughs> but it isn't is that kind of what all like isn't yeah. that kind of all celebrate? It's like New Year's. Think about New Year's. It's like, all right, it's it's like eleven fifty-nine. All right, it's midnight. Totally. It's kind of like yeah, total totally. block. At least Very there's fireworks for New Year's. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get to see it. You get a nice visual of the ball drop. Um, speaking, of the, the, speaking of balls dropping, there actually were some <laughs> there were some fireworks post-merge. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. That's the last time I tried to do a segue on the balls show. Dropping. <laughs> see, <I'm> balls dropping. Okay, bro. Okay, bro. All right. All right. Let me pull this chart up. All right, so what do you guys think? I mean, there was a lot of speculation going into the merge about what was going to happen. Um, obviously, obviously, uh, things are lower. Uh, Vance, I know you said in our chat leading up to this, we just need a couple more liquidations, then it's up only from here. What do you, what do you, what do you guys think about like price heading into the merge here? I mean, that was Kyle's, uh, Kyle Davies' tweet, a couple more liquidations and then up only. So it's kind of like... Oh, know, really? Oh, shit. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I missed that. That's incorrect. But, hmm. I mean, I think, you know without commenting on like the specific price of Ethereum and more of kind of like all of the positioning changes that happened overnight where the funding rate went from like heavily negative to basically, you know, flat or in contango. Now, if you watch futures, um, you had a bunch of people uh, shorting ETH, like you had kind of all of these unwinding of all these positions. And now I think, you know, going forward is really, this is so much flow kind of wrapping up in the last 20 or 12 hours that, like now we have kind of like the tactical people out of the market for better or for worse. And now it's like you can really assess the long-term impact of the structural change of Ethereum's proof of stake dynamics. So it's kind of like, you know, we're going to need to wait and see and the effect compounds over time. And uh, yeah, I mean, proof of stake is not something that, you know, the switch flips and everything changes overnight. It's more of something where it has a time-based impact. If you're removing, you know, 800 to a billion dollars of, of net issuance or sell pressure within a month uh, with the combined burn and issuance reduction, like the more months that occur, like the higher that impact gets. And so it's kind of like a wait and see game. But the biggest thing is that the chain didn't go down. Like maybe it was boring, but like, you know, Michael and I, there's like a picture of us last night. Um, we're like just looking at our phones and it's like pretty, it's like not super intense, but like all of our net worth is on one chain. Uh, and if it goes down, like what happens? Um, and so just the absence of a loss 
I think is a pretty big win. Yeah, the other thing I'd say, <clears throat> which has been interesting to track, is just like what's happened with ETH POW. And I was going to ask you guys, what has happened there? I haven't even heard anything. And that, I think, is kind of what's happened. There hasn't been really any news. There hasn't been any activity um, or you know, very much at all. Uh, 71, I'm just pulling up the chart right now, 71, 72 million of 24-hour daily volume. It's down 60% over the last 24 hours. I think a lot of this was people wanting to hold on to ETH. The bar rates on Aave yesterday were up to like 360% annualized. Um, people wanted to hold ETH on base layer to try to go after this fork. And you know now that trade is over. Um, so things kind of settle naturally because of that. And I, I think to Vance's point, this will just all kind of settle out in a little while. What is this though? Do you see this announcement on the renaming of the Ethereum fork token ETHW as ETF? Poloniex has decided to choose the fork chain Ethereum Fair. I can't tell if this is a joke or not, which is supported by the community's majority and more proof of work computing power as the main chain. Is this a joke or is like Polon? Is this, are these just the, is this the, as click, said, click on the pie chart. The click, click on click that on pie chart. That it, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I think this is something different. All right. So. Yeah, so yeah, look, so this is not a fork. This is like Justin Sun just like doing funny money things where he's like, okay, the Bitcoin people get this much, the Doge people get that much. I don't know why this is called Ethereum Fair. This just seems like kind of absurd and like a sideshow. Hmm. Justin Sun just like always delivers this is just on, Justin, on just Justin like Sun doing stuff. things like yeah. this. So not not super surprised. Um, yeah, good luck to everyone who holds Ethereum Fair. I know I like things that are fair. Sounds good to me. Sounds nice. I like the branding. A, <laughs> Sounds nice. Big middle Sounds of the Sounds fair. Curve. Who uh, better than yeah. Justin to make things fair? Okay. I will say it's it's kind of funny that Poloniex is doing this. I think we've talked about this on past roundups, but they were the ones, you know, their kind of history around ETH Classic and everything. Because this was the exact same thing, right, when there was the hard fork back then. And actually very similar thing. It kind of just trended down to nothingness after like three days. And then Poloniex listed ETH Classic at like 12 p.m. on a Saturday. Just sent it on this huge epic run and they uh they prepared for it better than the other exchanges and they kind of they kind of fucked a bunch of their competitions it's a pretty savvy move i i don't think that they're doing the same thing but it's just kind of funny that this is coming from polonia there's, there's also been a huge speaking of ethereum classic there's been a huge ramp up in uh hash rate on on the e I saw that. yeah i don't know if that matt it doesn't seem like that matters at all um it just feels like the yeah. miners are figuring out what the kind of next thing that they're doing is um but Good luck. This is my favorite part of the of uh, of the merge. Here, I'm going to share the screen again. Is uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see this is like the stories from mainstream media about mm -hmm. green ETH. Um, this has just been it. Like didn't hit me. I would say. Uh, I think I think going into the merge, a lot of people are talking about like structural differences and like supply and demand and like the differences and just like proof of stake versus proof of work and like it didn't. I think the narrative didn't really, at least for me, I didn't realize how strong and impactful the green ETH merge would be, a uh, green ETH narrative would be. And it was just interesting. I was looking at like how mainstream publications covered this. You have CNN, the world's second biggest crypto just got a lot greener. You have The Verge, ETH will use a lot less energy now. Forbes, here's what you need to know about the hotly anticipated upgrade turning the crypto player green. Politico, right? The list just kind of goes on like green crypto, Ethereum wins applause in Washington. Uh, and this is just like, this has got to be one of the best narratives I've ever seen, not just for ETH, but for crypto. To totally agree. I mean, think about this narrative with the backdrop of everything that's going on as, to the anti-proof-of-work perspective as well. 
you know, just earlier this week, you had the, I think it was the Treasury Department had to respond to the uh, presidential um, order to uh, to assess cryptocurrencies. And, and one of their big takeaways was we should potentially look into regulation of proof of work chains. It doesn't mean that they're going to. It doesn't mean that proof of work is, is not to be favorable or at least looked favorably in the U.S., but it does mean that they're going to start looking into it. And this at the exact same time as, as the merge and, and this 99 plus percent flipping uh, of uh, ESG and, and environmental concerns, I think it's just the, the dichotomy and, and the juxtaposition of the two is huge. I actually can't really. I, I will say, like, I don't love that narrative getting pushed because, again, just like fundamentally, I don't think it's a negative thing necessarily that Bitcoin uses proof of work. Like, I actually would prefer them to use their proof of work because I view them as this like money and they're not really supposed to have utility. I think that's that's fine for Bitcoin. Uh, so I don't really want this to get like brandished like a stick and used to beat Bitcoin. But I will say, like, we just did our DAS conference we've been doing for the last like four years. And one thing that struck me is like kind of, I kind of like remember different points of time, you know, from like when we've been doing it in past years. And I was just kind of remembering when we initially did it back in 2019, that was like rolling off of that bear market. And the consensus view very much at that point was, all right, all these ICOs were like, you know, something that was either way ahead or the market was way ahead of its skis or like fraud or like not great activity. And like Bitcoin was the only thing that was like, sure. And there was like this consensus rallying around Bitcoin basically. And now that we're in a bear market, you like couldn't be further from that, right? Like no one's really rallying around Bitcoin at the current time. There's a market difference from how it's felt in the past. Yeah. I don't know how you guys respond to that. I'm trying to just remember how it felt last time. Like what was there really like the strong BTC? I guess it, there was like ETH had like a really weak consensus. Like there almost wasn't like a group around ETH that was like distinguishable from the other L1s. Like in retrospect, you could probably see the differences. But at the time, like it felt like ETH was just like another chain. Um, and we kind of have this like collective instinct to like group around one thing when things get harder and like when things just need to kind of be more fundamentally justified. But it felt like in the last bear market, like we didn't know like what Bitcoin, you know, could be justified based on uh, what narratives like we could explore with it. And I think in the last bull run, like we really explored a lot of those narratives. We explored it as kind of like a medium of exchange, like, okay, there's no fees on the chain. Like we've had enough cycles to tell that that's probably not going to materialize. We explored it as like this inflation hedge through like the Michael Saylor saga and like, you know, all the super cyclers. Um, and I think like now it's just kind of like, we've learned that it probably doesn't work on a store of value basis. Just like it's not rallying when inflation is high. We've learned that it doesn't really work on a medium exchange basis. There's no fees on the network. Um, and I think this is the first bear cycle where people have been like, okay, cool. We now know these things. So by process of elimination, like we should probably go look for something else. And that's reflected in the quality of the people who are in the communities right now. Uh, the, the other thing too, in the, in the last bear cycle, uh, ETH obviously was being used basically as a fundraising mechanism for, for all the token sales that were going on in 2017, but there weren't really any applications built on top of it. You didn't have a single real stable coin that was built on Ethereum or built on a base layer blockchain. The application categories really didn't exist in a way that was scalable or, or frankly usable by the mainstream consumer base. And you had to kind of choose Bitcoin as the one prevailing narrative because, you know, this stuff was supposed to be money and you could use it as a medium of exchange. You could use it as a store of value. It could be even like a balance sheet capital asset that companies would be able to put on their on their balance sheet eventually. As Vance said, all those things have been tested, but that, that period of time, 2017, 2018, 2019, was when all the funding rounds for the alter, alternative base layers happened. So you had, you know, once again, the juxtaposition of 
Ethereum not really working, no applications are built on top of it. We've got stuff in the works where we're going to have other application categories, but they're going to take years to, to mature and get to the point of usability. And Bitcoin kind of is the remaining thing. Uh, whereas now I think that narrative is completely shifted. You have applications, you have stable coins, you have DeFi, you have games. Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of does leave the Bitcoin narrative in the dust. Yeah, the last thing I'll say on that is like the ESG and climate change stuff is super important, whether you agree with it or not. Like that's generally the way, like if you believe in climate change or not, or ESG or not, like doesn't really matter. Like the world is gradually gathering evidence that suggests it's real and the rest of the world is reacting by going distinctly in this direction. And like, if you're not moving with the crowd, you're kind of moving against the crowd. And hearing that the White House might like ban proof of work technology is like the first shot across the bow of, of what I think will be many. Um, and to your point, like you have to pick what is valuable. Like you can spend energy and you know put carbon in the atmosphere for you know some reasonable thing that everybody wants um but it has to be justified if ethereum can do a better job with less emissions you know there's just going to be a natural consensus that converges around that i mean that that was exactly what i was going to say next is is um nobody really talked about the energy consumption of the internet but it's because you have this uh, this value to it that is just inherent in in the usage you know youtube probably I don't even know what the actual number of uh, you know megawatts per hour, but I would imagine it's probably more than the Bitcoin network. And but nobody ever talks about that. I've tried to find that. Yeah, same. it's actually hard to find statistical information on it. Like, and I assume it's because no one even like questioned it. Right. Like, it, no one was like, we should probably figure out how much energy this shit's consuming. You know? Exactly. Just like, yeah, this is clearly useful. It, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I I wrote this thread on like green and on green ETH and like brought up like the Bitcoin narrative and how the Bitcoin narrative really turned and how that was detrimental last year. And a bunch of Bitcoin maxis like piled on the tweet. And I think the consensus of the their argument was the like let me actually just read one that got like the most likes. It was like, every time you use Ethereum, you're giving ETH voting power to those who already hold the most ETH. Every time you use Bitcoin, you're giving Bitcoin to those that put in the most work. Uh, you're basically like driving centralization by supporting this ETH proof of stake. Um, it's like, it's basically just like the anti-proof sta proof of stake argument, um, which I'm just curious how you guys would, how you think about something when you read that. Like, you know what else has centralizing tendencies? Like running large uh, proof of work electricity miners that are hooked up to an electricity grid. Like you can't just like do that in your backyard and realize any sort of uh, economic efficiency where like the cost of the Bitcoin will be less than what you can actually sell it for on the market. It's naturally going to go to these places like China, like these big industrial farms. Michael and I, one of our first investments out of framework, and like this is something that we obviously pivoted away from, like with retrospect, was CoinMine. And, you know, Farb's great, like shout out to the team, you know, it's it just like an idea that didn't really work. You can't do at home mining and have the same distribution of economics as you can with a proof of stake system. It's just like much more costly and much more uh, computationally intensive. So I don't know, like, who do people think are like, you know, running the Bitcoin chain? Is it like a bunch of people with like hydroelectric dams in their backyard? It's just like not happening. Um, so I just don't find that to be like very logical. I remember uh, we had a, we had a coin mine in our office. Throwback coin. Yeah, it's a I've, good idea. I've those were some pretty pretty looking rigs. I've got one in my closet. <laughs> it looked like an Xbox. If you've never seen it, it yeah. it's uh, I got yeah, my dad great. for Christmas. Our COO Julie is actually a helium whale. I always make that joke, but she bought a miner like super early. I'm sorry. Made like a bunch of yeah. Yeah, I was there. I was there when she bought it, and I was like, I can't believe you're buying. I made this. like I don't know if you can like, see this one on me. 
This guy down there. I've got a helium. I've got a hotspot. I've made like 27 cents from it. I was going to say, the, uh, one of uh, one of the people on our team uh, bought a helium miner, started mining it, and made three times uh, his money by selling the miner, not by actually mining the helium network. <laughs> yeah, I made like a whopping 27 cents. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. Silly to bet on that. Um, I don't know. I have to defend. I, I hear all the arguments about it. I still do. I guess I kind of feel the way about it, like almost like, um, you know, you. I look at some of the the libertarian uh, type move, like uh, political spaces in the U.S. And even though it's not necessarily my cup of tea, I am kind of glad that it exists as a counterbalance. And mm-hmm. I do I do see the value in it. I, I don't think it's totally useless. I, but I, I, I don't want to spend enormous amount as counterbalance for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to actually get your guys' opinion on Cosmos. Actually, uh, there's like a whole bunch of different ways that we could take this, like actually uh, kind of, you know, depending on how you look at it, I know it's only, you know, less than 24 hours, but sort of disappointing price action post merge for ETH. But Cosmos has just like been on a tear recently. There's a lot of excitement around Atom 2.0, which there's kind of an adjustment around the monetary policy there and a whole bunch of they've kind of teased what's going to go on there. And I guess they're going to lay out their whole master plan at um, Cosmoverse or whatever that is down in down in Colombia in the next two weeks. But um I, I thought actually Delphi uh, laid out something pretty interesting because they basically marked that as the next uh, ecosystem that they're really going to invest in. Um, you guys want to like, I know Vance, you had some thoughts on just what they wrote about and like how you kind of view the, the trade-offs of like building and investing in ETH versus maybe Cosmos and IBC. Yeah, I think the first part is like kind of the nature of, of tokens and, and both kind of like their economic and regulatory implications. So um on the regulatory side, like we have actually pretty decent precedent that something can become as a base layer sufficiently decentralized to the point where you know that token, you know, in the, in the past week, this came out where Gary Gensler is, you know, allegedly open to having this regulated by the CFTC, Ether that is, um, like you can get to a point where you're kind of like beyond the regulatory apparatus and you can operate as this decentralized network. And so that same concept doesn't exist for dApps, doesn't exist for like derivatives exchanges or like money markets that you slap a token on. But if you have a token that secures the fun, like the fundamental security of the chain, that seems to be some sort of like carve out or, or some sort of area where you have degrees of freedom to issue a token and have it be valuable and accrue fees from the network. And so within that context, like it's not surprising to see DYDX, a token which like doesn't have any you know real value accrual right now. All the trading fees go to a, a company like shift its model to being a base layer chain so that it can actually have the fees that it generates flow through the token in a regulatory compliant way. I think that's one part of it. Um, and I think the other part of it is like, you know, from a TAM standpoint, like if you're building a base layer chain versus a DeFi app, it's probably arguably larger in the former category if you're really successful. So those are kind of the two things that I see right now. Um, I think Delphi did a really good job of describing kind of like all the things that they want to have within like the superpower DeFi app and like why it should be built on Cosmos. Um, for me, I have a little bit of trouble, you know, like seeing that fundamental case, like their whole argument is like, you know, it's going to be one big DeFi super app. It's going to be uh, a universal credit account where you have derivatives and borrow lend and spot trading. To me, like I kind of can't see that versus just like an aggregator on an L2 with cheap fees, like rolling up all the existing protocols. Like why are those two things fundamentally different? So I don't see that argument as clearly, but I do understand the power of Cosmos. Um, but it doesn't have to do directly with like, you can do things here, which you really can't do other places. I don't think that's necessarily true. So, so one of the other takes that I I don't know, I think Vance probably shares some of the same perspective, but um, 
to kind of riff off of what he was saying on DeFi, I actually don't think that their argument should be focused on DeFi for having uh, Cosmos be the the central uh, application category, um, or, or sorry, having DeFi be the central application category built on Cosmos. I actually think a better model might be games. And, you know, basically hmm. the, the argument here is, um, well, I, I agree. I don't think that we need individual blockchains for individual uh, uh, applications for DeFi. But I do think that having individual blockchains for games allow you to have the transaction throughput to where you'd be able to actually have millions of concurrent players playing on that blockchain. And you can control the economics, you control the security model, you control, can control the token economics to the point where you know, gaming actually has the, the necessary throughput or the requirements for the thr- throughput to where this model actually might be the best use case for that concept. And yeah, I think having an aggregator on existing protocols versus a single monolith uh, is probably the way that DeFi goes, whereas games, I think, is actually completely separate. Super important point. Um, Just just I want to I want to add to what Michael just said. So right now, if you look at all the games, they're launching on like Polygon and Immutable and Solana and like first time first time game developers like trying to pick a chain. They don't really know which one. They're kind of just going whatever way the wind blows, wherever they get like more incentives. But a lot of these chains have like fundamental scaling thresholds that they can't really get past. Like uh, Immutable X is 9K transactions per second. If you get one like Dark Forest blew out the X diagnosis chain and like completely used up all the block space and halted the chain, like there's a really good chance that not all games can actually live on the same base layer. Like they're going to actually just like need to be on their different app layers. And so right now all these games are building on these base layers, but it feels like it's going to be a short hop from like, we're a successful game. We have a token. We don't know how it accrues value. Okay, cool. We're going to go build an app chain. And I think that's like more of the bullish Cosmos thesis than the DeFi one. But yeah, you know, DeFi or Delphi Lab says that they're like only focused on DeFi. So it, it kind of makes they, sense they, that they're focused on that. They kind of mentioned gaming in their post, but they, they definitely didn't go into it. Um, whereas I think it should have been the converse. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the reason they they focused on DeFi specifically there is because like a, a big point that they kind of made is that when you have a generalized blockchain, you have all sorts of different sectors or applications there. So there's like NFTs and DeFi and gaming to your point. And it would really, it really sucks, especially for like financial infrastructure, if something clogs up the chain and then the financial infrastructure can't work because, uh, you know, Bored Apes doing their land sale, right? right. Uh, and like to your point, gaming, if they bring on an order or two orders of magnitude more users than currently exist, uh, you know, you're you're kind of constantly, no matter how fast you scale, going to be dealing with this issue of like clogging up block space. Um, and so I, th- I think you know one one of the advantages that Cosmos offers is like, okay, you get to go launch your own app chain, uh, and there there's definitely like drawbacks to that, right? It's more expensive and time consuming up front because you need to like bootstrap your own network of validators and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you do have kind of the advantage of, okay, then you can kind of customize different things within that app chain as well. Like DYDX, they have more, um, you know, when they're, when they're building their own chain, they'll have the ability to like change transaction fees. And I think they'll get more, they'll get more uh, ability to like, they'll be able to do more with MEV on their own chain as well, which I actually think is a critical point because it seems like MEV is going to be the way that block space is monetized. Like it seems like that's going to be the dominant model. So if you have more transparency or like more ability to direct and uh, and order MEV within your own ecosystem, I feel like that's an enormous advantage, frankly. But once again, I wonder if that's why actually that. Yeah, the MEV is a, is a huge component. But but once again, I mean, isn't aren't all of those examples just even more important for an ecosystem like gaming versus DeFi? DeFi has already existed on chain at pretty decent scale for a while. 
in the Ethereum ecosystem, yeah. and it's just getting cheaper. I mean, everything with DeFi is going to be just a cost trade-off, and, and usability is going to get better over time. Aggregators are going to get better over time. But the other thing that's implicit within having your own you know, base layer chains is that you have to have transportability cross-chain uh, bridging and cross-chain swapping uh, of assets. And, and that is uh, at least so far, and we'll, we'll see. I mean, IBC is, is nice, and we haven't really seen any issues with it. So if that if that becomes the dominant solution across the board, maybe maybe this is not as important of a point. But I, I don't trust to put my financial assets in a bridge. Period. End of story. And and I think right. uh, you know gaming is going to be a different story because it's a game asset. It's worth five bucks. It's worth ten bucks. You know, I, I I'd feel much more comfortable swapping that versus you know an ETH token. Yeah. Is this going to enable the next generation of DeFi? Probably not. Is this going to be a model that people move towards, like once they're super successful and want to get more, more monetization? I would say probably that or an L2. But like, yeah, it's easy to like say like, ooh, this new thing, like we're just missing like this piece. And it's like, well, like maybe it wasn't that actually like transformative. Um, There's this small yeah. piece of history that I do wonder if it would have changed things, which is um, Compound's decision to build on Polkadot. Um, so if you guys, I don't know if you guys read that Delphi piece, but there's a screenshot of Rob Leshner. Um, so basically compound in, I think earlier, it was either last year or like at the beginning of this year, it was like, yeah, we should, instead of building compound on a bunch of different L1s, we should build the compound chain. And they decided to use their basically, I think it came down to either building on Cosmos or Polkadot and they chose Polkadot is my understanding of the story. And it just like completely flopped and they hated Polkadot. So they pulled out of the plan. But if Compound had built an app chain on Cosmos, then DYDX did it. Like, I feel like history could look just like that one decision, like things could look a little different, maybe. I, I agree. You know, the other one that was built on Cosmos is Luna and Terra. And and I think, you, you know, you, you do have some history there as well. I, I don't think that that will pervade. Yeah. And, and I think you have to control your own chain, essentially. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, it is an interesting revisionist history if Compound would have chosen Cosmos. Would that have moved more of kind of like DeFi 1.0 over to Cosmos as well? We, we've had a couple of portfolio companies have really bad, like, you know, like having to pivot away from Polkadot and like not trying to dunk on Polkadot or whatever. But I just think it's been, it was the first to kind of conceptualize this app chain model, like at, at like scale and like raise a bunch of money and, and really bang the drum. But it feels like the developer experience is is you know, like Tendermint versus um, Polkadot, like totally different developer experiences. But also the parachain model just doesn't really seem to really resonate with people. If you're building something that's supposed to last forever, why am I having to re-up my rent every six or 12 months? I, I have another reason why uh, Polkadot might not have taken off. Because it never pumped and made anyone rich, which is like really what you kind of, like I heard, I'm borrowing this theory that I heard from other people, but like, Really, if you think about the model of blockchains, like the distribution mechanism, like you want that base of like really early adopters who like buy in early, they get wealthy off of buying Bitcoin or ETH or Solana or whatever it is, and they become these diehard evangelists that just like pump it from here till noon. And like I, I do think, and like there are a lot of there are like the common theme of these like kind of VC ghost chains is like they set the price way too high, they got all the gains, and they never got any of those evangelists, even though the tech might have actually been really good. A hundred percent agree with that entire concept. The other, the other flip side of that as well that we've talked about is you can go too high, and so that you literally price people out. And and I know it's it's crazy, but uh, just the mental ability to like 
own one ETH when it was at 4K plus. It was like, oh man, you know, you're priced out of ETH essentially because it's going to take four thousand dollars for me to have one of these tokens, and you know that's a that's a psychological barrier for a lot of people, and and I, so I think it goes both ways. You know, if you make if you make a ton of people, a ton of early people, really wealthy, well, you know, you're going to kind of box out the future potential people, and if you don't make anyone wealthy, it hasn't really played out well so far. Um, so kind of damn if you do, that's why NFTs on Solana are booming. So NFTs right. on Solana are booming, and it's with uh, it's with the Gen Z crowd. No, I'm not even kidding. Like yeah. the Gen Zs go crazy for Solana NFTs. <laughs> they or love so I your heard. poet. Yo, that rhymed. <laughs> You're a poet, you know. I uh, <laughs> uh, I'd be curious to like get a sense of how you guys think about the model, like the even the revenue model for even like an L1 blockchain, uh, because I think it actually plays into the the like generalized blockchain versus app chains. Because I think if, if what like ETH is trying to do is sell block space, if we can agree that that's kind of the business model for Ethereum or other layer ones, then the other question is like, how do you monetize that? Or what is the correct fee structure for monetizing? Or what is the market gonna accept? So like, like to give you guys an example of kind of what I'm trying to get at here is in, you know, traditional finance, right? The the way that fees get extracted from connecting buyers and sellers has gone from just like, hey, pay $5 or pay like $100 or whatever to like buy or sell this stock down to zero. And now it's ostensibly zero trading fees, but a similar amount of money is still getting extracted from doing that. It's just kind of hidden in payment for order flow. So I kind of feel like some, the model of blockchains is you're selling block space, but the way that that's ultimately gonna get monetized is this like sort of known, like sort of hidden MEV, right? Because that's the ability to like order transactions within that block space. Do you do you agree with that overall model or no? Uh, so gen generally agree with the overall model. I'd say one of the discussions that we have all the time is it's not really sort of what's the business of the base layer blockchain. I'd say what's the user experience is sort of the bigger question. Mm. When you're talking about payment for order flow, you know Robinhood versus uh, commission fees for for a traditional brokerage, uh, you know that feels like probably the right direction for where retail flow will go. You're still getting paid, or the blockchain is still getting paid for those transactions. It's just getting paid through an indirect model, and you know for things that are higher value, higher costing. Um, you're probably going to have some fee associated with it, just like you would expect if you're doing any other type of transaction that was high value or complex or, or you know, of, of the like. And and so I think generally, you know, you're going to see fees go down, revenue go up because of that, because you're also going to have new application categories that just become viable when you have lower transaction fees. You know, if you, if you decrease the dollar transaction fee on Ethereum from $1 to $0.10 cents to $0.01, cent, I would assume that at each one of those breakpoints, you'd have more than a 10x increase in the number of transactions, and therefore revenue would be higher at each one of those price points. Yeah. Have we talked about the Arbitrum and Optimism MEV models? I, I feel like we might have. I was actually going to I don't really understand how it works. On no, that can too. we, can we no. get into that? Yeah. Can you explain that? So they kind of like, they take uh, opposing ideological positions on MEV. Uh, the Optimism mm. camp basically says, they kind of phrase uh, MEV like this. MEV is like a small tax on every user transaction. Um, we take that small tax, we put it into a communal pot, which we manage, and we use it to fund public goods. We use it to fund development for the chain. It's kind of just like a tax that we put. It's like kind of like how the government just taxes you. Um, and we're going to use this to build all the infrastructure and make the chain better. So like that's the, the optimism perspective. The arbitrum perspective is the polar opposite. MEV is bad. 
taxes on users are bad. We should do everything in our power to avoid this happening. And so they have this fair ordering, mm. fair sequencing model where they basically try to eliminate all of MEV and, you know, that's not going to be their, their model. And like, it kind of begs the question, like, well, what is their model, especially when their token isn't being used for gas? Um, and that's kind of like a TBD, but I think the thing also too, so like those are the two differing, you know, ideological positions. The East position is like even more nuanced with MEV. The East position is basically like MEV is bad. Um, you should optimize your apps to basically not have quite as much of it. But if there is MEV, we're just going to give it people, give it back to people who are aligned with the community, AKA those people holding and staking ETH. And so that's like yet another position. I think the things that we think about when we think about MEV are, um, Apps were so poorly designed in 2020, 2021 that like we've learned lessons and they're going to get a lot more efficient, specifically on the MEV side. Um, and, you know, you have MEV as kind of like a category um, and that kind of really directly relates to like things like AMMs and, and just like higher latency transactions that happen on chain. You also have models that are coming in kind of like above the AMMs, things like payment for order flow um, and Dflow is a protocol that does this, that basically just like sells order flow ahead of time to whoever wants it, market makers, DAOs, and they monetize and fill the, the volume that's going through it. And there's no MEV in that model. And so it kind of remains to be seen, and it depends on what the, you know, the dominant DEX model is, whether MEV is a really big factor in the future or not. And there's certainly some models which don't have that in it. But here, here's my understanding of it is like, so then you, what, what Arbitrum is inherently saying if you're pulling MEV out of the system is that they know the fairness of the blocks. It's, it's like up to Arbitrum to tell, tell people like what the fairness of the blocks is, but, but so then you're taking the auction system out. I, yeah, I guess I just don't get that. I think you need a way to, like, I don't think like even the way you were positioning that, Michael, like I think Ethereum should charge a lot for its block space. It's got arguably the most valuable block space out there. I feel like what it's saying is like, it's got these L2s, right? That that's where it's really cheap to transact. So you can spread a whole bunch of transactions on the L2s across the expensive block space. And then that's what makes that model kind of work, right? But ideally you would like to see Ethereum and Ethereum stakeholders find a way to like value that block space properly at a relatively expensive rate and then extract that value through validators. But if that's the if that's the dominant model for for blockchains writ large, then I can see the value of like moving onto your own app chain where, you know, if you're an app building on top of uh, like either ETH or like a layer one or a layer two, then it's not flowing to your validators, it's flowing to ETH validators, basically. And I kind of think that's the different the two business models that are emerging here. So I think it's more of a game of leverage. Yeah, and, and app chains don't have to be Cosmos, right? Like you have things like Boba right. and Métis that have forked L2s. And kind of what you do with an L2 as far as a business model is you just say, all right, you know, there's one person who's the sequencer who's sequencing the transactions and you get to decide basically how much MEV is there and how much do you extract. You're auctioning that roll off and you're basically saying like, okay, stake your, you know, whatever your app chain token is on the L2. And, you know, every once in a while you're going to get it selected to play the sequencer role and you're going to get MEV from that. And so like you can kind of have, you can, this is a concept that works both on ETH uh, and on Cosmos app chains. I think the concept that's important is like, you're now allowed to be like more opinionated on this, on this idea. Is MEV bad mm -hmm. or is it good? Should we give it to the community or should we give it to the user? Should we use it to bootstrap things or should we just, you know, deny it as basically like a regressive tax? Um, and that's like an interesting design space. Do you have a take yeah. on what's the best model? I think they're like really unique. Like the, I generally think that 
if you gave someone a dollar or if you gave like, you know, some really high quality capital allocator, a dollar that could make their life better, life's better by investing that, they'd probably realize more value out of like the latter situation where someone is like kind of like taking money from them a little bit and using it to plan and execute long term strategic goals that could make their lives better. Like that's the model that I feel like I'm most philosophically aligned with. The, the last point about MEV, and this is like orthogonal to what you just asked me, is like, I feel like there's a strike price at which MEV turns back on. And so like, if you've ever traded in coins on crypto exchanges, like, you know, like below a certain price, the liquidity gets worse just because like the market makers kind of turn off and just say like, eh, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, with MEV, it's kind of like the same thing. If we have enough volume, if the prices are high enough, like these MEV shops turn back on, they start competing against each other, you know, like. They're sending all these super high ga gas value transactions that are failing. They're adding fees to the network, even though they're not really subtracting anything. Like there is a strike price above which MEV turns on a lot more. And I feel like we're like below that right now. So that's a, that's a take, I guess. I think the market, whether it's good or bad, the market will just decide basically. Like I think that's what I kind of think. I don't, I don't know. I think people will display, like you could, right? Like you could recognize, like you could just, the network, ETH holders could basically just decide, I actually don't mind there being inflation and people who stake and validate, they will get that inflation, right? And everyone who's a part of ETH could be like, okay, that's fine. Um, and I'll just get diluted. But what they're saying is, I don't want that to happen. I don't want it to get to, to get it diluted. But validators are still saying like, I got to get paid for what I'm doing then a way that they're going to get paid is through MEV. And like, I think that choice has already been made. So I, I don't think it's even, it's bad or it's good. It's just the way that people are going to prefer if, if you've if you've looked at the yields on on uh or just like the estimates of yields i forget who put this paper out but you know right now it's about six percent with transaction fees and, and inflation but if you turn on mev boost and you're in a validator set that has that that's probably another three or four or five percent like there you know to your point michael like there's an argument that this is like you know 40 50 percent of yields and and is like structurally important um and it's crazy to think about because like last year it was so much crazier and like MEV was so much higher and, and like, you know, you probably would be yielding like 20, 30, probably more than that percent when that was like at its height. So it can become really meaningful. Um, and yeah, like we didn't even really yeah. know MEV existed until like a year ago. Like it was kind of this thing that like people talked about, but like no one really knew what the deal was. Um, and then Flashbots and that dashboard just like blew the door open. All right, I want to I pivot away, actually, to talk about, uh, there was an announcement. Uh, there were a couple couple big pieces of news this week, actually. Um, one was uh, came from Rob, Rob Leshner over at Compound Treasury. Um, so I actually want to connect this to, to a story that we covered a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but Compound Treasury just launched the ability to borrow. Um, they've already, uh, so last year, they launched this institutional cash management solution, and that's powered by Compound Protocol. So Treasury's the thing that's building on Compound the Protocol, which offers 4% 4, uh, 4 APR on USD and USDC. Um, starting today, what they, or I guess yesterday when they rolled this out, was the ability to actually borrow from Compound at like a 6% APR, and you can borrow USD or USDC. They've got a partnership with Circle on the back end as well that they help them source the USD uh, if need be. Um, the way that this kind of rolls into, they're sourcing liquidity either from other clients on Compound Treasury or they're actually going to the $3 billion locked in Compound Protocol. So the reason this kind of flows into Compound 3 is, remember Compound kind of rolled out this thing where actually they really simplified their protocol, right? Where instead of basically being able to post any collateral, right, to borrow uh, any other type of asset, what they said is like, hey, you can still post 
a smaller range of collateral and the only thing that you can borrow is USDC. And the reason for that, I actually caught up with Rob yesterday to talk about this was, he's like, look, when we started five years ago, we thought people were gonna wanna borrow all sorts of things. Now what we believe and what we've seen over the last couple of years, everyone just wants to borrow dollars. So basically the way that it works on their back end is like if 90% of the demand is just to borrow dollars, then if you're trying to collateralize lending, right? If you're basically, you're trying to establish a ratio, right? So if you have some collateral that's really volatile and you're trying to borrow something else that's very volatile, that's really tricky to maintain that ratio. It's much simpler if you have volatile collateral, but you're borrowing something that stays the same. So basically, they're trying to do really capital efficient borrowing. So you can basically do much more leverage at a much cheaper rate. Uh, and they're trying to basically just simplify and attack that borrowing USDC use case. And then that feeds right into the announcement from compound treasury. I actually, this kind of gives me like circle to, you know, we, we shouted out Jeremy Lair on the last one where they really just like simplified their product. I've, I really like what they're doing. I think they're just attacking a big use case and being like, this is the only thing that we're going to do. But I don't know what, what takes you guys have on what they've rolled out. Uh, I, I generally think that, um, what this does, and, and we've talked about this on, on previous bell curves is, uh, adds more institutional firepower to the in, in, into the lending and borrowing ecosystem for crypto writ large. And I, I also was checking out compoundtreasury.com, and you you can basically borrow USD, USDC against Bitcoin, ETH, and other ERC-20s up to 90%. It's, it's just open term. You can pay it back whenever you want. Um, this is a new construct that, frankly, just hasn't existed existed in the space yet and having more of these products and product categories will institutionalize and having to be on chain which is going to be a, a really really important component you know talk about this versus the centralized lending uh, platforms that have gone bust over the last few months um, you know this is a this is just a step in the right direction generally but but broadly I mean this is going to be a big uh, big driver for growth in the space I think in the next cycle Michael why is this something that hasn't existed before I think I'm missing something the exact product of open term on-chain fixed rate lending um, just is not something that it, you've had an open term uh, variable rate and you've had some fixed rate, but not really in, at scale and, and really kind of as an institutional product. I mean, Ave, you've obviously been able to, to do fixed rate for a while, um, but I think the, the scale is kind of the just the, the difference maker here. Got it. I, I think the question that... Um and this is one that I, I can't really wrap my head around because like we talked about this uh, on last week's episode too, was just that the short term, I'm sure this will reverse, but like short term headwinds of TradFi yields being higher than yields that you can get in DeFi. I think that's a really tough problem to overcome. And I don't really, I don't know what they're going to do in the short term there. Because that was supposed to be like the Trojan horse, right? That was supposed to like lure capital in because you could chase a higher yield. And it didn't really work. Honestly, I mean, it brought, it, it brought a shit ton of money and it just like, there's like, just, <laughs> no, it didn't. It like no, 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 sorry, 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 it brought <laughs> degenerate yield in, right? Which like caused crypto equity prices to explode. There weren't like banks being like, oh yeah, I'm only getting 3% here. I see 8% in crypto. Like, let me earn yeah. yield in this like safe way because they were all like, these yields aren't real and they were all kind of right about that so like yeah it attracted a lot of people but it didn't there weren't like institutions and big hedge funds and like fixed income like money market type things that are like let me take advantage of the spread in yields being offered in crypto versus chad 
Don't in, make me the bear here. No, <laughs> they didn't do that. Bear. Like, <laughs> like, 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 come on. Don't like stare at me like that. Uh, I mean, bull markets, um, like, you know, a race to see who can import capital into crypto feels like bear markets are kind of like who can export capital faster through like coin shares or like, you know, Coinbase. It's, it's, uh, yeah, you, like if USD yields are lower on chain than a T bill, um, that's going to be difficult. But, you know, if you think about ETH, like the yield's nice, like we'll take that. But the thing that's interesting is that you get paid to hold an asset that has a potential venture scale return. Um, and that's just something that TradFi could never offer. And, you know, for, for better or for worse, same with a lot of these, uh, call them like longer tail coins. Um, you know, like, sure, the yield is nice, but like a lot of people are just buying it because of the lottery ticket. Yeah. And the extra 4% on Lido is just a little, a little kicker. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you guys, so, uh, all right, so bravo again to, to Rob. That's really exciting what you guys are doing. Um, I get the, you know, in terms of governance proposals, it was a super light, super light week, actually, but there was, there was actually an update too. So we talked about this, you know, uh, Coinbase institutional rewards. They submitted a proposal on Maker to actually take some of their PSM, some of the USDC that's just sitting in the PSM and basically custody it with Coinbase um, and earn... 1.5% on that. So one thing that I actually, I didn't understand when we were talking about it last week, but like looking deeply into it, like the what they're actually doing is there's Center Consortium, that's the issuer of USDC, that's a partnership in between Coinbase and Circle, and there's a revenue split there. So the 1.5%, people, we pointed out that that was below uh, like what you could get, like Fed funds is going to 4%. We were kind of like, how is 1.5%? Where are they getting that? So Circle's earning... Uh, USDC is earning whatever they're earning, right? It's like probably around three or four percent because they're putting it in government, short-term government security, short-term corporate bonds, that kind of thing. And then there's a rev split in between Circle and Coinbase, and it depends on where they're custodied. So if the USDC is custodied at Coinbase, then they get a bigger percentage of the split. So basically, what Coinbase is saying is, hey, if you guys move that that USDC over to Coinbase and custody it with us, we're going to get a higher percentage of that yield, we're just going to share some of that with you. And the advantage there is that they're not even, un that's why they're able to not even unwrap the USDC. So it's still super liquid for Maker. And then there's this new proposal from CoinShares, which is they're saying, hey, all right, that that's a good move for you guys. Uh, take a smaller amount, 500 million USDC, give it to us. We're actually going to unwrap it and invest it basically in this portfolio of you know, different really short-term securities. Um, and the way they structured it is they're going to give them SOFR, which is like a now 2.25% plus some upside. So whatever they outperform on SOFR, it's like one-third goes to Maker, so they get some upside on the 2.25%. Uh, uh, CoinShares gets the other third, and then the other third, CoinShares is allowed to buy MKR from Maker. So it's kind of like a, it's just a more variable fee structure. Um, and I think the trade-off is it's less liquid um, because it's not, you don't have like interblock liquidity there because you're unwrapping it. You'd have to like unwind that position, but you do get more yield. And it's frankly, it's variable yield, which is probably pretty good. Uh, they probably want that. Cause like if yields go up, then probably their token is going down. So it's probably <laughs> a pretty good hedge, honestly. Um, so I kind of like it actually. I shout out to coin shares. I thought it was a good proposal. CD is back. That's my take. I remember when you had that narrative mm -hmm. like a year ago. And uh, yeah. I forgot what happened to that, but it feels like this, like you pair one corporate entity with one protocol, like, you know, Coinbase and Maker, you have Compound Treasury and, and Compound, um, 
Like, it feels like that's going to be a real lever, especially in a world where, you know, like the protocols who don't have access to the outside world are just like going to be less able to generate real cash flow, if that's where the yields are, at least. Um, but it's cool to see everyone kind of like, it felt like in the bull market, we didn't have like the proper time to kind of like introduce everyone to each other, like, you know, Coinbase, Meet Maker, okay, like you should get to know each other, start working together, like, you know, build the muscle memory of like taking in USDC or die yeah. and like going and lending it off into the TradFi markets. And I think that makes the crypto ecosystem stronger and more resilient as a result. So I like that this is kind of back as an idea. Um, and I think it's an interesting growth alley for, for avenue for, for DeFi. Anecdotally as well. I mean, we've been seeing a lot of pitches recently in the direction of what I, what we've called before, you know, public permission DeFi, where you have some uh, regulated institution that, uh, you know, or, or set of institutions that are going to be wanting to build into the DeFi ecosystem. They don't really know how yet, or they don't know how to integrate. So maybe they're going through a custody provider, or maybe they're going through like a Coinbase, and they're trying to get in, but now they want access, and and now they're going to start interacting in ways that, that they just haven't been able to thus far. And and I think that you know we're also going to start to see new layer twos pop up regionally, which are focused on these different ecosystems because you know Latin America, EU, US, all different rules, and you have to abide by those when you're a regulated financial institution. And so I think you're going to have to also have regulated, uh, regionalized chains as well. And and so I think CDFI whatever we want to call it, public permissioned DeFi, you know, I think this this combinatorial effect of having uh, institution with large customer base, large balance sheet, whatever it may be, interacting on chain now is, is going to be the narrative of uh, a lot of what DeFi is for the next couple of years. The last thing I'll say is like, it's good to see these, like all the DeFi protocols basically have business models that are endogenous to the on-chain world. And they work really well when the on-chain world is popping off and really bullish. But like, Having another, you know, tool in your toolkit for when the markets are bearish and you can start exporting instead of like importing, you know, it just helps build like a, a counter cyclical business model, which is what a lot of crypto needs right now. And building the counter cyclical business model just like helps you integrate everything with TradFi and just make it more sticky, which is good. I would say um, I think one of the other benefits of this in general is like they probably should have been doing this stuff from but it's like during the bull market, right? I mean who has time, right? Like, why are you trying to eke out 3% on your treasury? <laughs> like the whole world is at your fingertips. So now I think it's probably, you'll probably, and you'll probably get some financial professionals in there as well that manage this stuff for them, um, which, I, which I think is good. I think this eventually becomes a service. I think there's a, I think there's a unicorn company built here where like, instead of just going to a coin shares or like, like these one-off, it almost feels like coin. Yeah. I, I just think that there's, um, it won't it won't look like this in like a year or two or three years from now where like the you know maker sends it to coin shares then they some, send some other stuff to coinbase and then another protocol sends it here basically whoever's winning the sales deals uh it's like someone's gonna end up winning like building a business just to manage these treasuries or, or it goes in-house I, I, although it probably doesn't go in-house actually it's too much capital no it no doesn't way. go in-house no, no i bet i bet circle launches either circle launches or someone else launches tokenized treasuries as we, a, we told as this to circles product team like a year ago right like we circle should definitely do this because that's what you want you would rather have that like you'd rather actually have uh you know because this is all like indirect right like circles like internalizing they're managing that like off-world and on-world connection but really what you'd rather just do and they're earning all of the yield for that which is like amazing for circle but people are going to look at that and be like i want some of that so basically what someone's going to do is either launch a competitor circle 
Or if Circle could get out ahead of it, they should just do what they're doing with stable coins, but for treasuries. And then they should just manage the liquidity in between that. And that would be like an amazing hmm. business, I feel like, for them, if I were them. But would, would that need to be a regulated product? I would imagine. I, but that's where this is all going, right? Like, this is all going towards permissioned DeFi. Totally. I would guess. Or at least a large swath of permissioned DeFi. But, yep. Hard but I don't think it would it need to be... Would it need to be any more regulated than what they're doing at the USDC? Because they're just providing a portal for dollars. Once you get into money management, money markets, like that's like extra, extra bonus points regulation. Um, Do those guys get regulated a lot? <laughs> money market funds, they pay attention to that? Dude, the people you meet who do that stuff, when they talk about regulations, it's just like they hate it. It takes up like 60, 70% of their day. Um, yeah. But. Yeah, there, there's also a huge difference between, I mean, who is regulating dollars versus who is regulating treasuries. You know, you're talking about the office of the comptroller of the currency versus the SEC. Two very different conversations. Yeah, it's a really good point. All right, I've got, uh, actually, the, the last two stories basically on the agenda are Fidelity uh, potentially launching Bitcoin in their brokerages and then um, Polygon partnering with Starbucks. I don't know, do you guys have a preference between the two of those? I mean, the, the Fidelity potentially launching retail crypto I think we talked to someone on you know their product team or something in like 2019, and they were like, "Oh yeah, next year it's, we're going to be able to have retail crypto." <laughs> it's like I feel like this product has been years away, or it has been a year away for years, uh, and it's great to see it come mm -hmm. to fruition. But um, yeah, <laughs> tough to have it come to fruition in, in the in the bear market. But it's hilarious how this all got leaked, which is. Mike a Novogratz. Little, a little birdie. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. I like Christmas party saying random shit to people. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Getting tattoos, blowing up people's spots on stage. Like, oh my God. But he, so he said this on, on stage at Salt. He's like, a little birdie told me that Fidelity is potentially launching crypto on their brokerages. It's like, <laughs> and, and then he tries to back it out, back out of it, where he's like, "Well, I hope the birdie's right, but I don't know. The birdie can be wrong too." <laughs> well, this okay. birdie's highly unreliable. But I, Jesus, what, what do you guys? I mean, that would be a pretty big deal. I mean, I like to give uh, Fidelity a little bit of credit. Like, I know they move super slowly, but they also, I mean in terms of like a big regulated institute, like they manage over a trillion dollars worth of assets. Like they've done a lot, I think, for advancing the legitimacy of this entire space in the minds of the greater world, but certainly finance in general. It'd be a, hu it'd be a huge deal if they rolled Bitcoin out. When I think it is Bitcoin, by the way, yeah. is it crypto or it, is it Bitcoin? Is no, it, no, it's is, just is Bitcoin. Is it that big of a... It's just Bitcoin. It's just Bitcoin. They're, they're very... Yeah. yeah, I think they will do ETH stuff later, but um, they are just Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> ETH is next year. I think I... <laughs> Yeah, ETH is uh, a, a decade from now. Um, I don't know. I don't think this is as big of a deal as you're making it out to be, Mike. I mean, I guess it just like... I'll <laughs> take the other side of that. I'll take the other side of that. Because I, in terms of like retail brokerages in the US, it's like E-Trade, Fidelity. I'm missing one of them. It's enormous yeah, distribution. Yeah. Basically, what you're saying is like, this is like the third biggest distribution pipe and you're going to put Bitcoin smack in the middle of it. And that's, I think that's an enormous, I think it's an enormous deal because that's basically the way Bitcoin has to scale. You basically Bitcoin to isn't going to scale question, through utility you, you, in crypto. You have to get people outside of crypto to like no, I know. buy Bitcoin. You have to ask the question of like, point. what is the percentage of people who use 
TD Ameritrade and, and E-Trade and Charles Schwab and Fidelity who want to own Bitcoin but haven't bought Bitcoin yet because they're not comfortable opening a Coinbase or Kraken or Gemini account. That and that's that's the opportunity for there is a lot, dude. Lot. Look at the yeah. premium. Look at the premium on GBTC. That is like kind of what fucked everything up, right? That's like the whole that that's the whole thing. Yeah. Now there's a big discount. It's like my this, yeah. This is like a product for like <laughs> yeah, my my uncle. It's like for the literally thought of yeah. my uncle as well. Like you know a guy who I've like tried my, to my get uncle will eat account. this up. No, yeah, yeah. I've tried to get him to set up a Coinbase account for like four years. He refuses to do anything that isn't through like the Morgan Stanley wealth management platform. Actually, you know like, what? If Mike was twenty years later, this product would be. For I was going to say that's why I yeah yeah because I also the, don't love this figuring old, this shit the out. Old man Mike. Yeah yeah, one thousand percent. This is me in five years. But like, I think that's how most people are. I think you should be judging Mike, it based on Mike's like how most his people Bitcoin are out of Coinbase and putting it on Fidelity. <laughs> you know, I am thinking, I am thinking about my dear old dad. Honestly, like my my like whenever he has to like make a transfer, you know, on his account, he's like messaging me like, "Am I doing this right?" And it's like, you know, that's how most people are. I think. I buy that. It's fair. My, yeah, yeah. I, my, my dad still uses the the local bank, the local like town <laughs> bank, because he's able to bank. because he's able to get on a, a call a call with them when he wants to do something. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, my visceral reaction to any announcement of like, oh, this institution is coming into crypto, like, has just historically been a nothing burger. When all said and done, I'm hopeful that this is not that. Uh, this was probably one of, if not the biggest potential financial providers uh, are potentially getting into the space. But yeah, just historically, like my visceral recall is, you know, great. You know, the, uh, what, what was it called? The Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, you know, and uh, all the institutions I mean, that were coming in. Yeah, it, it just is, uh, it's tough to see sometimes. I mean, I'm with you on that. <laughs> like, I'm I mean, it's you. never yeah. one thing. It's never one thing in a silo, right? It's all these yeah. things just end up compounding on each other. So, I have a question. Exactly. I actually have a question for the two of you guys, when someone, you know, comes up and you probably get a lot of pitches like this, right? Like, hey, I've got this idea, you know, real estate on the blockchain. I mean, how do you guys respond to stuff like that? Do you think that like first, do you think that eventually ends up happening? But the, the reason I'm asking is, again, just because we had this conference yesterday and I was getting almost like this visceral sense of like deja vu where, you know, all this stuff that I hadn't heard in like the past two or three years. Uh, but it's basically like new iterations on blockchain, not Bitcoin or enterprise blockchain or, or whatever it is. And it always kind of resonates with with uh, new people who haven't been around and heard that before. So I'm just curious, like how you guys respond to when those sorts of ideas get brought up. So I, I don't think it's not going to happen. I, I think it's just a question of mm -hmm. when and how. You know, we had the whole security token mm -hmm. concept, whenever that was 2018, securitize, harbor, uh, you know, th that model definitely was tried. But I don't, I don't think you had the capital nor the scale to pull that off. And and frankly, that was also at the time when you're talking about securitizing, as we're talking about, like mortgages and commercial loans that were going to yield you four, five, six percent when you've got Wi-Fi and, you know, all these crazy DeFi summer token economics happening in the background and you can get thousands of percent APY. Right. And so you, you kind of have to choose the right market cycle and the right customer base. And it was, I think at the time, it was just a mismatch of, of customers and, and product. Um, whether that's, you know, we're talking about getting 2.28 SOFR plus a third of the variable on top of that. Like, it, maybe now is the yeah. right time. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the other thing is like, you know, if you see 100 pitches, now our job is probably like, the first thing we do is disqualifying 80. Just based on like, 
you haven't really thought through yeah. idea ma- this idea maze. You haven't really thought through like how complex the regulatory implications are. You haven't really thought throughout like how competitive the vertical is. Um, and I would say like most of the disqualified pitches that we see are things like neobanks or things like uh, you know, uh, like we do see a lot of like real estate on on the blockchain style pitches, but you know. Real estate is one of the most regulated uh, sub industries of, of the financial sector that exists today, and so I think a lot of the stuff is just like easier to build endogenous on chain, um, where like everything sits on chain and it's not connected to the real world. But hopefully, we get to a point where the regulations are easier enough that we can actually make those pitches viable. But right now, I would say that they're pretty far away. Yeah, fair enough. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, Starbucks and NFTs on Polygon. Yeah, you want to take us through this? I feel like you have been looking at it. You love Starbucks. Uh, this Monday, Starbucks announced a, uh, a, a partnership with Polygon, um, and they created a new rewards program. I actually honestly don't know too much about this. I don't know why I'm taking it, but they uh, here's what I know. They announced this new rewards program, Starbucks Odyssey. Um, Starbucks rewards loyalty program members and Starbucks partner employees are going to be able to earn and purchase these NFTs, which Starbucks is calling journey stamps. Um, I think like, and and it's built on Polygon. That's, that's what I know about it. But I think the important thing to like, think about here is just, um, I think it's fascinating that Starbucks is doing this. Starbucks is not just a coffee brand. They are one of the biggest financial institutions in the U S they have more, they have $1.6 billion in deposits just sitting around. That is, they use that to, like, they don't have to go borrow when they want to go build a new place and, like, they want to, like, do a huge ad campaign or, like, upgrade equipment. They don't go borrow from the, from a bank at 2% or now 5% or whatever it is. They dip into their $1.6 billion hmm. in, in deposits. And the deposits come from... Uh, the deposits come from their rewards program. So their rewards program is really interesting. Like they were, they rolled out basically a, in, in 2008, a loyalty program with physical cards. And then in 2014, they rolled out the mobile app and they put the, and they put the, the, the gift cards onto the mobile app and you get one star. If you purchase something, if you like, I, I think I don't go to, really go to Starbucks actually, but I think it's, if you, if you purchase something at Starbucks, you get one star. And if you purchase something with, with royalty points, you get two stars and then the stars get you things. So then you're heavily incentivized to use your royalty points. So then it's like, Hey, just dump a hundred bucks into Starbucks. You know, you're going to spend a hundred bucks this month on Starbucks. You should, you'll get double the points if you're spending your royalty dollars, essentially. Uh, it's like SUSD, right? You get double the, double the rewards if you spend SUSD. What that has caused is there's over $10 billion in rewards, in rewards dollars that are added to Starbucks every single year. And right now they have an excess of 1.6 billion. So So that's just like the prepaid, right? It's like the prepaid prepaid balance, right? Okay. Every single year rewards members load $10 billion onto Starbucks cards. Over half of Starbucks that's bought in the U.S. is done from this program. 25 million yeah. people in the rewards program. It's pretty nuts. It's a huge. I Because I, I first heard this. Well, I, before I had to, what did you guys think about this? Because I first kind of heard this. I was like, I'm not really sure, but it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm not a huge like Starbucks loyalty user, although I, I probably if I pulled up my app right now, I probably have like 20 bucks sitting in there because I just, you know, forgot about it or something, which is, I think, you know, where that 1.6 comes from. Um, but I, I think, you know, this, this sounds kind of like a Pokemon Go game for Starbucks users, customers. And I think having an NFT 
that you can earn and you know you can sell. It's an interesting component, but once again, it kind of goes back to the question of like, what's the overlap of Starbucks customers and NFT fans? Maybe it's a bunch of NFT fans, you know, Gen Z, Gen Y, Gen A on on uh, Solana, or or maybe now it's going to be Polygon. Um, so it, it does kind of feel like it'll be interesting to see what the overlap is of the, those two customer bases. It's funny. You're, I mean, this is a good segue from the from the real estate on the blockchain conversation because this is the same group of convers. This is the same. You're, you know, you're at a party in 2017. Guy number one says to you, "Hey, I'm putting real estate on the blockchain." Guy number two says to you, "Hey, we're putting loyalty points on the blockchain." And like, we're putting Starbucks rewards on the blockchain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I I think it's, I mean, like. If you the numbers behind Starbucks are staggering, but even when I was at Netflix, like the gift card program was kind of like this thing that was run by you know people who weren't like you know core entertainment industry veterans, but like it drove so much of the business that everyone had like all this reverence for them, and like it works in the U.S. It works even better in South America and emerging markets um, where the financial ecosystem isn't quite as stable, and you can earn and and basically acquire a ton of customers through this. And sure, maybe you're giving them three or four bucks in these imaginary rewards points that um, you have them spend, but like that's far lower than the CAC to acquire a new customer and, and keep them loyal and, and buying stuff in general. So, you know, you bring on people onto the blockchain, like you're cool with me. Uh, I think the risk to Polygon is basically that you kind of have all of these like dead experiments that just like live on your chain and like, you know, slowly get wound down. But, you know, you have to take swings and they're going for it. And, and we definitely respect that. So, you know, we're, we're definitely on board with it. One of the interesting questions that I think would be fun to see um, is just can Polygon keep up with it? Let's assume this is really successful or, or frankly, just like 1% of Starbucks customers end up using this. That's going to be probably the largest application on a blockchain period. And can Polygon keep up with that scale? We There is a game that did a uh, an NFT drop to its, um, to its Twitter followers and they had to mint 400,000 NFTs on Polygon. It, that was about 40% of the entire activity for like a month period on Polygon at the time. You know, the, the, the numbers uh, that are, are going to be an interesting mismatch is just like, can, can the scale of Starbucks be put on a blockchain right now? You've seen pretty deep reorgs in Polygon already happening. Um, and like, I'm going to feel a lot more confident in Polygon when they switch to whatever the ZK technology is that they're building out. But what they have right now just feels like, yeah, you've scaled for the number of users that are on a blockchain today, but if it gets 10x bigger, like you have real problems. Uh, and I think that's not just them, by the way. It's, it's a lot of people, probably other than like ETH and the L2s, but um, it is concerning, I would say. Let me do a thought. Pro- here, here's a maybe unintended. Here, here would be like best case scenario of the Starbucks thing, I think, is that um, if you look at all loyalty programs, they're in these like closed systems. So it's like if I get airline points or something like I just they just sit until I end up using them and like Starbucks points you can't really do anything with them maybe there's like a cash out thing but you can't really do anything with them I do wonder if this like because you've got the 800 pound gorilla in loyalty programs which is Starbucks there's probably like who are the other big players in loyalties it's like I know H&M has a big program with like 100 million people like Amazon Amazon. Prime is a huge like Amazon's obviously one uh, like Sephora has a big one, but like I feel like Starbucks is really the 800-pound gorilla in like the consumer side of things. Uh, this could drive like what if what if this sparked like moving loyalty programs into like an open system? Brands are not incentivized to do that, but like maybe consumers start demanding it. 
I'm trying to think through other mm. options here, but the benefit of it being a closed system is that if somebody forgets about their points, um, it's just like deleted basically, you know, nobody's, you know, like Mike to Michael's point, he's probably got 20 bucks on his phone that he's never going to use. Um, but if you establish a market for that, there's a clearing price and there's more incentives to sell it. There's more incentives to use it. Like your gift card program gets less effective rather than more effective. And so like, I think you have to go back to like, what are the first principles reasons to do this? And, um, blockchains being cool is I think a valid reason. Um, but like what economic value does it either, you know, ascribe or subtract to this whole process? The subtraction side seems pretty visible. The NFT stuff kind of seems like the linchpin. Like if those NFTs are actually cool and you're creating something of like real value that does not just like allow your customers to draw more on your inventory for free, like that feels like, you know, you're creating value and, and like that could create an ecosystem. Um, but it can't just be the loyalty points, I don't think. Yeah. I, I agree, though. It, it, it's got to be consumer demanded. It can't be, you know, supplier pushed. A, br uh, a brand would never. Yeah, a brand right. would never do that. Right. But it, it, if you can if you can pull one on uh, in the same way that Fidelity is probably going to have the same effect here in their own ecosystem. If Fidelity has it, then Schwab is probably, you know, thinking about this, working on this. E-Trade is probably doing the same. Uh, if Starbucks is successful with this and Starbucks customers like this, you're I think 100 percent right. You're going to have to start considering this as, as a strategy for if you have a large loyalty program and customer base that wants this. Yeah. Did you guys, um, I, did you guys listen to that? Um, the all in where the, I forget Friedberger where it's like all brands are going to die in 30 years. Do you hear that explanation? I actually thought it was kind of an interesting exercise. I, I'm not sure if that is, I like, that's a pretty hot take, but like it did kind of make me think, you know, because I was also thinking, I think a lot of it comes down to like the NFTs, you know, um, and, you know, if you actually read the text on like Starbucks press release, they're like people, users can go through fun quests to like learn more about coffee and Starbucks history. And it's like, like <laughs> nobody wants to do that, exactly. you know, but, but, you know, maybe it could work for Nike, honestly. And you know what, actually, you know, who's actually basically trying this at like, there's another odyssey that's going on right now. That's the Arbitrum Odyssey. Um, and like that, or like that's about to get restarted. That's a really interesting example of like old world and new world, right? They're kind of trying the same thing, right? They're trying to engage a user base and like get them to go and do all of these different things using NFTs. I bet one is going to be way more successful than the other. To well, I know yeah. they're trying to do it at a different scale. But, uh, yeah, so. I mean, the first Odyssey for Arbitrum literally broke because of lack of you know scale, <laughs> so they had to go back and mm. fix it and, and make it better to be able to keep up with scale. I, I just once again question, do you have a product customer mismatch? And with Arbitrum, mm -hmm. obviously you, you don't because you're talking to Web3 native potential customers and users. With Starbucks, you might have some overlap, but it uh, it, it does feel like, you know, your, your kooky aunt and uncle being like, hey, I'm cool, you know, I'm, I'm on the blockchain. And it's kind of like trying too hard. Sometimes uh, if they can do it in a cool way and consumers are enjoying it and like the NFTs, I, I think, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting and, and could have massive effects pulling in other brands. But yeah, it's just a question mm -hmm. of can they pull it off for this, this customer base? Did you guys see the uh, Coinbase launched? Uh, they basically took a page out of Uber's playbook and they made it extremely transparent. They were like, hey, uh, here's basically a map and you can see how politicians in your area think about crypto. Just going to throw that out there. 
You know, that was a genius move. I love that it, move. It's yeah, awesome. Me too. Hats off to Brian and the team yeah. for, for pulling that off. Hats off. Yeah. yeah. I think they're yeah. the good guys. You know, I wouldn't say they haven't done anything cool. Me too. Um, I generally can conceive of them as like good guys. Um, I yeah. mean, they're definitely fighting the good fight. <laughs> yeah, they're doing the tornado cash people. They're doing this. They're, you know, putting money behind yeah. political efforts. Like, All right, Well, now I'm feeling bad. Now I'm feeling bad about my my statement. I rescind it. I'm ashamed. <laughs> can I show the you tornado guys, cash uh, is cool, actually, too. That's good. Can we do can we do memes of the week? Yeah. yeah. Memes of the week. I I just have a picture that I thought was really really funny. You guys see the Avalanche KKR news? Yeah. Yeah. Avalanche is uh, helping KKR put things on the blockchain. This was just like. KKR makes history. We're preparing and building towards a future in which securities are traded on public blockchains. <laughs> Web3's ability to manage digital identities. That's not even a meme. It's literally just an ad. Asset ownership. <laughs> These guys are a meme. This is hilarious. This is like the most antithetical Web3 crypto image I've ever seen. Uh, I just mm. love this. This is making me crack up. So mm. Interesting mean, selection. Yeah. Jane. I don't, yeah. Yeah. There, that's an interesting shot. I'm trying to think of what the best meme of the week has been. Um, hmm. Leo got a new girlfriend. She's 27, was, so inflation <laughs> affects everyone, including Leonardo. <laughs> that was <laughs> literally <laughs> that was literally going to be my meme. <laughs> back on his feet. Uh, good. Good for him. Yeah, back on his feet. I do I'll think bo- actually I'll the only co- met met Ledger. That was big. Uh, that was right. Kobe, Kobe met Ledger. Kobe, Kobe's <laughs> a really nice guy when you meet him in person. Um, yeah, uh, he, he's good for the space too. Even when he throws bombs on Twitter, I'm like, if Kobe ever comes for you on Twitter, just move to a different country and change your name. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> I agree. I thought that was kind of a heartwarming picture, actually. I thought that was really nice. I was like, they're meeting in person, you know. Ledger just looks like the nicest guy on the face of the planet, honestly. They're both great. Looks looks like good. Yeah. Did you see the uh, yeah. the ledger the ledger memes of what people were were yeah, yeah. in the chat? Ledger definitely closed ledger his drawers like... with his hips. <laughs> Dude, I listened to a podcast where he defended it. He's like, everyone does that, right? I was like, I do that too. Yeah, for sure, man. It's like Ledger's the kind of guy who says after a rain, the plants really needed this. <laughs> yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of good ones. Um, I do. I do actually just to return to the Coinbase thing for a second. I actually, I mean, that's just like a savvy move and everything. But I do think that's like a move really in the right space because, like, if we do want to move the ecosystem forward and everything, I mean, you, you have to get politics involved, right? I, I don't think it's a particularly smart strategy to just like flip the bird to everyone and be like, I don't need you, and I can go live in the metaverse. Like, I, re- I do. I'll advocate for what I said a couple weeks ago. Like, I live in America and I like living in America, and I don't. I think just engaging politicians and like it sucks nobody likes to do this but like playing the game is like the right way to to move the space forward in the right I, way. I don't think the industry is is flipping the bird and saying you know we're gonna go live in the metaverse i think the industry is knives out right now and you know ever since mm-hmm. the um whatever that bill was last summer or maybe two summers ago i can't even remember now where you know the uh the industry basically got out the vote and started calling everybody, at least in California, like you couldn't leave messages on our senators' phones anymore because literally the, the inbox was full. Uh, and, yeah. you know, like that type of that stuff, great. I think, was a rallying cry for for what we need. And, and now you've got PACs up, being set up left and right for going after these opportunities. We like it. It's totally. a movement. You got to you gotta be behind it. You know, you can't just be 
flipping shit coins. There's there's more to it than that. Speaking of flipping shit coins, do you see that Board Ape is coming out with another NFT collection? Do you guys oh, catch this? So so G Money told me this. Do you know how many different individual pieces of of uh, NFT IP that Board Ape has? Wait a sec. I think two. It's did, some. Did you mention two hundred? Yeah. Did you mention like two hundred fifty thousand? Like a, a ridiculous. Yeah. Maybe I said this before. That's a lot of like. That's a lot of like. Do we need more? Yeah. Like is now no. the right time? These are questions that I would be asking. Um, mm. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if more land is what we need now. More metaverse land. More land. I feel like more land. For- I, feel, I, feel like I mean, the the other side, the other deeds were just sold for like a million bucks last week. It's like, it's, who's buying other, other what's it's it called, other edge. space? Land. Land, it's a, it's a, it's a good inflation edge, right? There, there's so many times when I ask myself, who is doing this? Like, the ETH proof of work trade? You're telling me like tens of billions of dollars of like notional exposure thought that they were going to make like a billion dollars from ETH proof of work? That's unbelievably silly. I can't figure out who that is. Like who's buying other deeds for a million dollars each? Like, is it like a fund? Like, it doesn't really seem like it could be one of our contemporaries. Like, is it like a rich retail whale? It's like, that doesn't seem right either. A lot of these things just like, maybe they're just like from China and like, we it's just like a different participant set, but I don't get it. Blame it on China. <laughs> blame it on, blame no, it no, on no, China, no. man. No, no, no. Wow, looks ugly on you, Vince. Looks really ugly. Hey, last last question for you guys. What do you, do you guys see Doodles raised this week too? Doodles did a raise. I feel like we're what do you guys think of that? Companies and just doggy on them. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know. Congrats. I, like, happy. Yeah. It's gonna be like hats know, off. Hats off to to raise in this market is the only sentiment that I have. I think he was like a $750 million valuation, which implies that there was yep. some sort of bidding war, which implies that like mm. there were multiple parties who thought this was a good idea. Maybe maybe it is. Maybe I'm just wrong, but it seems kind of silly. That okay, was like I, the I, kindest I just, way to say that you don't think this is a good idea. <laughs> I mean, listen, we didn't invest in it. Nor, nor were we offered allocation. So like, you know, let's, let's not get it twisted. But, you know, we didn't try to get it either. I have a I have a question for you guys actually just on NFTs in general. Do you think cause there was some there was some pushback to this, which was like, hey, if these VCs wanted exposure to this project, they should have just bought the NFT, right? They didn't actually need to raise like equity capital to fund this. My what do you guys think about that? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I actually don't. I, I don't know who did this deal. I think one. It's so thing- messed up. I got a bag. You don't like this bag? Look right at how here. nice this bag looks. This? Right here. I, I mean, it, here, here's some of the some of the inside track of what probably these funds had to go through. Many of these funds literally can't hold on to tokens unless you're a registered investment advisor. You can't buy tokens or, or token you know, NFTs and hold them in your fund. So you have to buy the equity of the mm-hmm. company behind it. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case here. And I, I don't know who actually did the raise, but depending on who it is, you know, anyone can go on FINRA and look up whether or not they're an RIA. And, and uh, yeah, it, that's probably more of the backstory. This, uh, this, my, like my take on this is that, uh, like uh, on what you just said, Mike, of people being like, buy my bag, like they should have bought the NFTs is people are miss um, understanding what they're getting when they get an NFT. They, they, they are thinking that it, it is an asset that they are investing in and the assets should go up. It is a consumer product. It is a collectible. Like when you buy a watch, you're like, 
I buy this watch because I like the watch. You're, you're like, if, if it also goes up, that's nice. Like if you buy a Roly and it goes up, that's nice. But like at the end of the day, it's a consumer product and it's a collectible. And that's what, <clears throat> that's what NFTs are, are just consumer products. Uh, they're, they're not these assets that should go up. And they definitely that's don't represent good. equity in the company. <laughs> no. Like, let's say that no. Rolex raised a huge round and you own a Rolex. Are you going to be like, why did nobody buy my Rolex for 1.5x? With some of them, <laughs> doesn't make any sense, and so I don't think that that makes sense for people to think in this context. Um, I think the promise is that if Rolex raises a billion dollars, um, it'll up the brand profile, it'll up the lindiness, it'll make in time what you hold more valuable, but it won't be through a direct purchase. So I kind of don't have a lot of sympathy for for that perspective, um, because if you think this is a long term asset. You know, you're not like, why are you buying? Why are you not buying my bag tomorrow? Um, and that's really how you should be investing at the end of the day. Yeah, there's a concept in crypto that seems like kind of flipped to me, which is the opposite of like what you guys do early stage equity investing, which is like you buy and you have like you're very concentrated at the beginning, but then you basically get like a smaller part of a larger pie as things go on. And I kind of feel like there's this. Uh, pervasive idea in crypto specifically where it's like I should be rewarded for being very very early and like keep getting a larger part of the pie and I, I don't not necessarily a larger part of the pie but that like reward should continue accrue to me passively and I don't I fundamentally like don't uh, think that's necessarily true to be honest and uh, employment forever I my money it's just like what is I don't it? understand yeah. that perspective. Um, for us, it's always like, you know, when you buy equity in a company, every single round that you raise after that round, you get diluted. Or you have a chance to put in more money if you want and re-up, but you don't get anything for free. And generally, like, everyone is lined with, you have a smaller piece of a larger pie as time goes on, and you monetize through that. Um, having a larger piece of a smaller pie is just like, cool, you own 100% of zero, you know, at the most extreme case. Um, and it feels right. like that's where a lot of these things go, where if you can't think communally and build things from a value perspective uh, on a community basis, like nothing's really going to happen anyways. So I don't, I don't understand that perspective. Yeah. All right, guys, boys, Cheers. some spicy takes we had this week. Enjoy Thanks. the rest of, uh, we'll let, you, we'll let you get back to the top. The offsite. All right. <laughs> <laughs> get back See to the you guys. Top. Peace. <laughs>